Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, your wonderful word that declares um, who you are, reveals your character and nature, and also um, your, this wonderful unfolding story uh, that leads to um, the Lord Jesus Christ and your great um, plan of redemption and salvation uh, and your eternal kingdom. Thank you for Daniel and all that we've learned about you uh, through that. And we pray that today, once again, uh, you would draw our eyes to see your majesty and glory and the magnificence of our Lord Jesus. Um, change us by the truths we learn uh, for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Mark. Hi. Uh, so we're reading from Daniel 7. You'll have a place in the Bibles if you brought one in from outside. Daniel's dream of four beasts. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked... And there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothes were as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. 
Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority and were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now we have the interpretation. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns and its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched this horn, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the early ones, and he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people would be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and a half time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Our friends, let's pray together. Can we pray again? 
Our gracious God, we, um, Lord, we need your help whenever we open your word. There's so many things that distract us so much that's on our hearts. Uh, there's our own sinfulness. Uh, there's uh, just our own weakness and, and, and just the um, frailty we feel when uh, we are confronted with your holy word to us. We, we pray that whenever we open this um, gracious word in the scriptures, we, we pray especially now, Father, that you might help us to understand and live in the light of this chapter, uh, this part of the book of Daniel, which uh, is both sobering and wonderfully liberating. We pray that we might hear its message rightly and that we might live for your glory in response. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you might find yourself thinking every now and then, uh, what is this world coming to? What's the world coming to? So perhaps you've felt that every now and again. Uh, it's been a while since we've looked at one of these, um, but I thought today would be a good opportunity to hear from one of my favourite pessimistic philosophers, good old Charlie Brown. Uh, he's walking along with his friend Linus Van Pelt, and you can see Linus has his uh, security blanket he drags around everywhere. Uh, he never leaves his side. He's, and Charlie Brown's obviously irritated, and he says, So you think the world is getting better? Well, if you've got so much confidence in the world's getting better, how come you hang on to that blanket? Linus looks down at his blanket, you can see, and then he sticks his thumb in his mouth and cuddles his blankie and says, touche. <laughs> uh, Charlie, Brown, uh, Charlie Brown had his own way of dealing with what the world was coming to. If you flick to the next one, he says, I've developed a new philosophy, only dread one day at a time. <laughs> he says, I love this. He's, he's, he's just great, isn't he? Uh, but it's, it can be easy, can't it, to ask ourselves, what is this world coming to? Um, especially if we've lived long enough to see change that we don't like. And we, won't re we could rehearse lots of different ways in which that might be the case for you. The incredible social and technological and political changes over the last number of decades. Um, we're coming to the end of this series, through, as Steve mentioned, through Daniel chapter 1 to 7. Uh, and uh, I was hoping to get through the whole book by now, but for various reasons we haven't been able to, but I, I hope to finish it off down the track at some point. Uh, but if you've come with us so far through this uh, journey in the book, maybe you've picked up a bit of a common theme through pretty much every chapter that we've looked at uh, so far through this incredible uh, book of the Old Testament. It's a theme that it's, it plays itself out in different ways in each chapter, but it's the same reality that is constant through the whole book and it's, uh, it says this, one writer puts it like this, one writer writing about Daniel says this theme in this way I think is very helpful. In spite of present circumstances, God is in control and will have the victory. In spite of present circumstances, God is in control and will have the victory. That's kind of the drum beat that's been beating all the way through Daniel. Uh, it's the heartbeat of the book. There's a bit of repeti repetition as we've kind of worked through, read through these passages together, these stories of incredible salvation and what God has done. There's, so there's some repetition that's sort of playing on this same theme. But I take it uh, that that repetition is there because we need to hear it again and again and again. <laughs> we need to hear this message again and again and again before it sinks in. <laughs> Uh, it's vital for God's people. It was vital for them back in the exile um, when Daniel set, and it's just as vital for us today. 
So this chapter, chapter 7, it really lies at the heart of this book. Um, it, it captures this theme, this theme in its fullest and in most incredible way. The chapters that follow um, for the rest of the book really are kind of expanding on this one chapter, chapter 7. Uh, and you get, you, get to heart, you get to the heart of this chapter, you get to the heart of what Daniel's all about, and you get to the heart of what it means to live as faithful exiles. Remember right back in the start, we talked about that theme of being exiles. The New Testament picks that up for Christians, the same sort of idea. Uh, living in two kingdoms, living in, in, with God as your king, but also in the kingdoms of this world uh, that live opposed to God. Um, this is going to be helpful for us. I hope this is helpful um, and not too kind of technical. But this, uh, we looked at this a few weeks ago, and this might help you just kind of orient us to what's happening in Daniel. You might remember that uh, this section of the book hangs all together after the first chapter, which is like an introduction, chapter 2 to 7. They're all kind of parallel with each other, and we saw that in 4 and 5. They're basically two stories that go together. Same with chapter 3 and 6 about God's rescue of his people. There's this really interesting parallel, though, between chapter 2 and 7. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Um, but that's going to be very important, this parallel between chapter 2 and 7. Um, but there's a really important difference about this chapter, chapter 7, that is really helpful to, um, that we need to talk through and think through if we're going to get a handle on what this chapter is on about. You might have noticed that as we read through, as soon as you get to this chapter, if you've been here in the previous weeks, so we've looked at Daniel, there's this huge shift in tone or the type of writing it is this huge shift in style, um, and, it, and it breaks the timing of the book. Did you see that right at the start? If you have your Bibles open, you can see right at the very beginning of the chapter, it says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. That's not where the story's up to at this point, if you were here last week. Um, so this chapter jumps us back in time in the storyline of the book, so if that makes sense. Uh, it's the beginning of this section, uh, so it, it, that's one sort of indication that something different's going on here, but it's not just that. From chapter 7 onwards is this beginning of a kind of particular type of uh, genre, a type of writing known as apocalyptic writing. Um, the word apocalypse or apocalyptic just, talk, it just means re- revealing, revelation. It's a revealing, uh, but it's a special kind of revealing in, in this ancient genre that is used through the rest of this book, it's like the curtain is getting pulled back on the everyday realities of history. Uh, Everyday historical realities, the curtain's getting pulled back to show the transcendent spiritual realities that lie behind the everyday historical realities that we see in front of us. Uh, And because it's describing these unseen spiritual realities it uses these and you might have picked this up as we read it through it uses these rich symbols and imagery and metaphors to picture uh, as it pulls back the curtain on on reality it uses this incredible um, uh, really rich language and metaphors work by taking something we know to help us get a sense of something we don't know so uh, when a poet says my love is a fire that burns within me uh, my love is a, uh, we're not meant to think he's actually on fire, okay? You know, you know that. Uh, he's talking about something that we all know. 
We all know about the warmth and intensity of a fire. He's using that image to uh, kind of bridge the gap to the mysterious intensity and warmth of his love. It's the same sort of thing going on here. These dreams take on, uh, take, they take things that the original readers would have known well. Lions, bears, royal throne rooms, all these images and things that the people would have known well. Uh, and it uses them to create this rich picture of not just what we see in front of us, but pulling back the curtain of the unseen spiritual realities that lie behind human history. And here's where that link between chapter 2 and 7 is really important. So uh, in chapter 2 you get this dream of the statue, if you remember, if you're here back then, this incredible statue, impressive, it's made of four different metals. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream. Uh, It's made of these different metals that represent four different kingdoms. It was imposing, it was beautiful in its own way. It represented all human power and achievement, this statue, but it also represented human pride, right? Human rejection of God. And, and in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, if you remember it, there was this stone that came and wiped out the statue and that stone turned into a mountain that covered the whole earth, which was um, representing God's kingdom. But now you come to chapter 7... Okay, up to now, Daniel has been the one who interprets everyone else's dreams. But now Daniel gets his own dream. Uh, he gets his own dream. He's the one who gets a dream from God. And it's like God is pulling back the curtain on chapter 2. This statue is what you see from a human perspective. Imposing, impressive, even attractive in its own way. But when you pull back the curtain... When you see what's really going on underneath it all, what is it that you see? Well, this is what Daniel sees in chapter 7, verse 2. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Straight away, it's a very different picture. Instead of the solid, attractive statue, here is this frightening image of darkness. It's the sea in the ancient world is this place of chaos and evil, and this image of this great sea being whipped up by winds coming every direction would have would have been terrified. It would have made Daniel terrified, and his terror would have got worse as he sees these. Bizarre creatures, <laughs> these bizarre monsters really, emerging out of this, this stormy sea, this raging sea. They're ugly, <laughs> they're unnatural. You notice they're, they're kind of these w- weird hybrid creatures. Uh, all these different things mashed together. And we find out in verse 17, uh, when Daniel asks what is going on with this vision, what's the, the interpretation, we find out that they represent... Just like the statue in chapter 2, they represent four different kings or kingdoms, uh, just like the medals of the statue. Uh, you've got the lion there, right? The lion with its uh, eagle's wings on the back, the, the wings get trimmed off and then it's given the mind of a human. The bear on the other side, uh, next to him, he's raised up on one side, he's, he's just finished off one meal and then he's told to go and eat another one. Uh, he's, then you've got this swift leopard, 
with four wings and four heads, and then it's followed by this fourth beast that's unlike all the rest, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. Um, horns in the, in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, horn, these horns are a symbol of power. They're this symbol of power. Um, and this guy's got ten of them. <laughs> okay, they're coming out everywhere. Um, then, yeah, as you read on, yeah, as we heard read for us, this one other horn comes up and uproots three of three of the others, and this last horn speaks boastfully. This little horn that comes up—it's um, it, kind of strange to get your head around what that would look like—a horn with a bit of a face on it or something. But whatever it did look like to Daniel, this horn speaks boastfully, and we find out later. Uh, Daniel asks for an explanation of this later in the chapter. In verse 25, we find out this horn, this, this sort of, it's like a symbol of human arrogance towards God, this final horn. It speaks uh, against the Most High and it oppresses God's people. Well, friends, there's endless debate over what's going on with these different beasts, which historical kingdoms might be in view with each one. Uh, it's pretty widely accepted that the first one, the lion with the eagle's wings, uh, is talking about and pointing towards Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. You might spot some similarities. You can sort of, with the story we heard about Nebuchadnezzar being humbled and then restored. Um, the position I've ended up landing on is that the next three kingdoms, similar to the statue... Uh, the next three major, uh, uh, sort of point towards the next three major kingdoms that came at that time. The kingdom of the Medes and Persians with the bear, the kingdom of Greece uh, with the leopard, and lastly the kingdom of Rome. Uh, but it's who the little horn, the, you know, the, we talked about this, the, we, we heard about this horn coming up, the little horn that speaks boastfully about God. It's who that is that's called, is probably the most hotly debated thing. Um, if, if this fourth beast represents Rome, the, the, king, the empire of Rome, it may be this other horn that comes up, maybe pointing to a Roman general who ended up destroying the Jewish temple in AD 70 and mocking Israel's God. Some think the fourth beast is actually Greece, the kingdom of Greece, and uh, the little horn points to this ruler that came called Antiochus Epiphanes. You don't need to know all the names, but others, though, think the little horn that comes up uh, is talking about someone entirely into, in the future that hasn't come yet. Well, so that's just to acknowledge that this is one of those areas where lots of people have different ideas. It's important, though, I think, to remember how apocalyptic this kind of apocalyptic type of um, literature or imagery, how it works. Um, it pulls back the curtain on history and it uses these vivid images... Uh, these, these metaphors to paint a picture of the spiritual realities behind history. What can be confusing, what can confuse us is uh, this attempt to nail down precisely which of these things refer to which kingdom or particular person. I think there's, it's right to do that. Uh, and as I said, I think the best way to un is to understand the fourth beast as uh, Rome. But the nature of this kind of writing that you get here, these visions that are happening, this apocalyptic writing, the nature of it means that while these beasts might be initially referring to one historical kingdom, uh, 
pulling back the curtain on that, what it's really saying is those historical kingdoms also, in a way, point back to the beasts, not just the beasts point down to them. These beasts coming up out of the sea are a way to picture all human kingdoms that set themselves up against God, that show up in different ways throughout history. Uh, That's why in another apocalyptic book you get at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, uh, you get a vision... Uh, a different vision, but it's this vision of all all four of these beasts sort of squashed together into one super beast, right? Uh, the beasts, the kingdom of chaos, the darkness they represent. I think they, they run across all human history. Well, you may want to come back at me on that, and you, you, I'm sure there are lots of opinions about that among us, and there have been certainly across uh, lots of different... Um, thought about this, but whatever you make of the details of the beast, what comes next is really the burden of this chapter, the heartbeat of it, and what we need to focus our time on. We've, we've been dragged into this kind of crazy dark vision, right, of these beasts coming out of the sea. Um, even through all of that, though, there's a hint of something else going on here. Did you see, did you pick that up as we read through? The lion was given a mind of a human. The bear was allowed to eat. The leopard was given authority. As, as terrifying as these beasts are, what we're meant to see is there is a power that sits above them. And it's that power that comes into full view when you get to verse 9. Uh, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. It's such a contrast, isn't it? It's what we've just had, this scene we've just seen. It's such a contrast. You've gone from the unnatural, chaotic, dark, malformed beasts coming out of the sea and suddenly you're snapped into this picture of absolute purity and goodness. Uh, It's God's courtroom. God is called the Ancient of Days. So while these these kingdoms, uh, they come and go, God is eternal and he's absolutely holy and good. His white clothing, you notice that his white clothing and his white hair, it's not meant, you're not meant to picture an old man in his white dressing gown or something with white hair. That's not what's going on. The whiteness is a symbol of white hot purity and goodness. Um, and that, that just gets hammered home by this river of fire that flows out from before him. This is chairs on fire. We've got this river of fire rolling out before him. And did you notice, as you keep reading, there's millions around him. I, don't, uh, I used to watch a series called The West Wing. Are there any West Wing fans out there? Mm, no. I'll, I'll uh, recommend it later. But uh, I used to, it's, it's this behind-the-scenes uh, shot of the American presidency. So it was... Uh, a while ago, that was fascinating. I found it was fascinating how many people were buzzing around President Bartlett as he went about his kind of stuff. But it was nothing compared to what's going on here. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 
10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Whatever has been done is open and clear to this ancient of days. Everything is laid bare before him. And then the vision goes on in verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority and were allowed to live for a period of time. See what's, I mean, what the, there's some details there that we can talk about, but what's going on really there? While these beasts look so terrifying and so powerful and so unconquerable, nothing they do will be passed over. Everything will be accounted for. And they will appear before God's throne in judgment. They don't rule. In spite of present circumstances, God is in control and he will have the victory. God rules. But you see what, go- what happens as we read on? He rules through and in this strange figure that suddenly emerges in verse 13. And as I read through what's going on here, as I read through it, notice how he's both a human figure, but there's also things said about him that can only be said about God. Um, In the Old Testament, coming on the clouds or being surrounded by the clouds is a sign of God's presence. There's other things that are going on here. I'll read it. Uh, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There's something that really happens so this is, this is this one through whom God exercises his rule and in a way is actually equal with God himself, the Ancient of Days. But there's something that really interesting that happens later on in the vision. You get this one like a son of man. He's sitting alongside the Ancient of Days, ruling over this kingdom of God. Uh, but as you read, out, uh, read along, did you, maybe you pick this up, there's someone else who shares in this kingdom of God as well. Um, in verse 18, is, it says, The holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. And then down in verse 27, which should be on the screen, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. So you get this picture. Who, who really rules? God rules. He rules through his king, the Son of Man. But in some way, this kingdom of God ruled by this Son of Man, will be shared by God's people. And if you've got your Bibles there, do you notice in verse 17, the certainty of it? They will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Forever and ever. They will possess the kingdom. Well, what are we to make of all this, friends? Um, 
We read this chapter, there's obviously more details we could go into, but we read this chapter as Christians, as those who live on the other side of Jesus. And it's really important that we take that into account as we think through how to live in the light of this chapter. If you're familiar with the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, you'll know that this title, the Son of Man, is one of Jesus' favourite ways to talk about himself. Over and over again, he calls himself the Son of Man. And having sort of read through Daniel 7, we can start to get a bit of a handle on what a huge thing that was for Jesus to claim about himself, what a claim he's making by doing it. Um, This is on your outline, but one of the most dramatic places that he does it is in the end of Matthew's Gospel. And this is Jesus facing his own death. He's standing before the Jewish leaders who are interrogating him. The high priest comes and says, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus kind of, he accepts the title, he says, you have said so. But then he goes on in verse 64. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, that just sends the high priest and the Jewish leaders into an absolute outrage. The high priest tears his clothes. They condemn Jesus to death. They says they slap him in, they spit him in the face. They punch him with their fists, and he's led to the Roman authorities, uh, which end up leading him to his to his death on the cross. But do you see what's really interesting about this phrase that Jesus uses? From now on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Um, when I kind of hear that, I immediately think uh, Jesus coming to earth. You know, we think of the second coming. But when you read Daniel 7, when is it that the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven? Where is the Son of Man coming to? He's not actually coming down to earth. Uh, in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is coming up to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. When does that happen with Jesus? Uh, It happens in his resurrection and ascension to his father. The incredible news of Daniel 7, uh, trying to draw some of these threads together, the incredible news of Daniel 7 read through the light of Jesus is that Jesus is already now seated at God's right hand and he already reigns now, today, over his kingdom. In Jesus, this unstoppable kingdom of God has already come. He is here and he reigns now. We obviously, we wait for that kingdom to be fully established on this earth. But it's already begun. It's it's begun in Jesus. And in a profound way, the gospel says, the end of the world that Daniel looked forward to, (laughs) what's the world coming to? In In this really profound way jesus says the end of the world is already here Uh, god's judgment will come in a full and final way but in jesus it has already fallen jesus has taken it in on, on himself at the cross and through jesus you cannot be cast into the fire in that final judgment along with the beasts of human pride but instead you can be one of the people of the most high sharing in his eternal kingdom. His kingdom will one day be universal. All people will see that he is Lord, but he is Lord now. 
and he gives his people a job. If, if all of this is true, if the Son of Man has come to the Ancient of Days and has received his kingdom, if Jesus really is this eternal King of God, God's eternal King, the Son, if he really offers freely through his own death and resurrection for all people to enter into this eternal kingdom, then what for us who live in this end, in what the Bible calls the last days between Jesus appearing first and second? Uh, well, Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark about that, and I think this is intentional, the way that this works in Matthew's Gospel. He tells us just a couple of chapters later in chapter 28, how does, how does, if Daniel 7 is true and if that's been fulfilled in Jesus, what's the outworking for his people? He doesn't say, keep to yourselves. He doesn't say, just dread one day at a time. He has a much more liberating and fruitful and positive vision for what it looks like to live in his eternal kingdom. Famous words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That should ring some Daniel 7 bells. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. For Jesus, that's what it looks like to live in the light of Daniel 7, looked and read through the reality of what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection for us. Let's pray about that, shall we? Let's pray. Our gracious God, and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible realities that are opened before us in this chapter. Thank you for uh, the way it pulls back the curtain on the, re the sobering and really frightening realities that lie behind um, human power and uh, human kingdoms that set themselves up against you. Father, keep us from aligning ourselves with those things. Uh, we thank you, Father, though, much more for the incredible, overwhelming certainty that that gives us, that in spite of present circumstances, you are in control. And through Jesus, we know that you have already won the victory. We thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. We thank you that he is Lord and reigns over all things now. And Lord, in, in the light of that, in response to that, we do ask, uh, Lord, we pray that uh, we might hear Jesus' own words that in response to the fact that all authority has been given to him, we might go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that you have commanded and in the certain and sure hope that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. Please equip us for that, Lord, and give us a heart for that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.